chapter 2. So in James so far, uh, we've gone through uh, basically God calling us to maturity as believers. Uh, As believers, I think one of the things that keeps us from really enjoying our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with His church, His people, and our relationship with the world is really just immaturity in our faith and our trust in Jesus. And so this morning, after we got done with last week's uh, passage, we uh, studied verse um, 18 through 27 of chapter 1. So we're going to start by reading chapter 1, verse 18. He says, James writing to the the scattered uh, Jewish Christians, the early church, he says, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. If he observes himself, he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues in it, is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So in verse 18 through 27, we have uh, a recap from last week. Uh, The instruction to those believers was continue to be instructed by God's word. He says there in verse 18, it was according to God's will that he brought us forth. Some translations might say begot, he's begotten us again. But he says he's brought us forth by the word of truth. In other words, your birth in Christ is a manifestation of conception, like the birth of a human being. And that conception is the seed of God's word and the Holy Spirit uniting to witness to you about Christ. And our faith and our trust and our new birth comes out of believing and hearing and trusting in Jesus for our salvation. That's where life begins. Jesus said, if any man would see the kingdom of God, he must be Born again, John chapter 3. Not of the water, like all of us were born, but by the Spirit of God. And so if that is the case, our birth begins with the Word of God, but our life sustains with the Word of God. It's still our daily bread. Jesus prayed in the, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And that is what sustains us in this world. So then, he says, the response for the Christian is to be instructed by the word, but recognize that the word is going to step on your toes. It's going to chip away at your flesh. 
your natural humanity. And that is, it steps on our toes, but when it does, don't get angry, don't spit it out, but let it step on your toes. Let it remove the junk, because if it does, you'll grow. And so our responsibility is to respond to the word simply by emptying ourselves of the things that God convicts us about and then receiving with meekness the implanted word. That word that saved us, he's planted in our hearts and he's writing it on our hearts as we read it. But then what he says is receive it with meekness. Meekness is the idea of receiving it with power under control. The willingness of a horse to be broken leads to it being able to be led. A horse is full of strength, and yet when it's out of control, it's dangerous. But a horse, when it is broken and surrenders itself to the will of the one riding on its back, being guided by this little piece of metal in its mouth, becomes useful, becomes no longer dangerous, but an enjoyment. And, and even powerful, useful for, for plowing fields. It, it, we don't do that anymore. We use tractors and things like that. But a horse in, in Jesus' day, or a donkey, or any animal, an ox, when it was under the control of the one driving it, was useful. And, and eventually led to fruitfulness in fields. And so he says, receive with meekness the implanted word. Hearing and talking the word he goes on to say, cannot replace obedience. Hearing about the word, listening to Bible teaching, going to church, and then even talking about the word of God with other people cannot replace personal obedience to the word. If we're not obedient to the word, then there can be no fruitfulness. If we receive it, but we don't do anything about it, we become like forgetful hearers. And uh, Jesus actually said this very thing in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, you know, (laughs) and and actually we'll see in James that even the demons believe in God and yet they don't surrender to him. And And Jesus said in the book of John, he said, if you really love me, you'll do what I say. You'll keep my commandments. And in 1 John, the same thing comes up. He says, if you love God, you'll keep my commandments and my commandments won't even be a burden to you. You'll want to obey me because you love me. And so true followers of Jesus will spend their lives doing what Jesus teaches and does. You know, because recognize that all of the things that Jesus called his followers to do, he did. He did them completely to the point that it cost him friends and family and prominence His way to the cross was not one where people were high-fiving him and saying, go Jesus, follow God. And he was surrounded by God's people. And so the way of following God is never popular, but it's always rewarding. And so as we looked at last week, he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So he's going to give us ways to be doers. And so as we begin in chapter two, he's going to talk about something called favoritism. So let's read verse 1 through 7. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings, wearing fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, 
And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And the word there, thoughts, means evil motives. And so he says, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? And so he calls to question the way that they are treating people when they come into the assembly. And this is human nature, right? Many of us might read this passage and go, well, I'm good there. I don't treat people with partiality. I don't treat them with favoritism. Uh, But what I want to point out is that in Jesus' day, at his first coming, the context that he came to, wealth or lack of wealth were signs of God's favor or judgment. They weren't actually signs of God's favor or judgment, but that was the thinking, that was the culture. If you had a really nice house, if you had lots of livestock, if you were rich in this world, people looked at you and said, wow, God must really love them. And if you didn't have anything, conversely, they would look at you and say, wow, they must have sinned pretty bad for God to curse them like that. And we may not think that we think that way, but I think that we do in many cases. How many times has somebody mentioned to you, so-and-so is going through a hard time, and the first response, maybe you don't say it, but you're thinking it, well, they shouldn't be doing X, Y, or Z, and then that wouldn't happen. We're pragmatists. We look at things like cause and effect, but it's not always the case. And many times we judge people based on what happens to them, and we go, well, guy had a heart attack. Stop eating bacon cheeseburgers. You know, something as simple as that. Now, many times that does happen, right? I mean, I like my bacon like anybody else does. It tastes awesome. But the reality is it will have consequences if I eat only bacon all the time or if I eat too much. But the point is, is that that's not always the reason that bad stuff happens. And so scribes and Pharisees were often wealthy. They, they had a lot of money. And so, of course, the people in that day would look at them and go, wow, they've really got the blessing of God on their life. And what Jesus said about them in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, remember that the book of James is basically a, 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 an applied teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. And in many ways, that's why it's kind of hard-hitting. But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. These were the most holy guys they knew. These were the, like, they were the upper echelon. Everybody looked to them to be taught. Everybody embraced what they had to say. And yet, what Jesus taught his disciples was, uh, receive their teaching, but don't do what they do. (laughs) Pay attention to what they say. They're saying all the right stuff, but their hearts aren't in it, and they don't live it. But they were looking at the scribes and the Pharisees going, man, the hand of God, the blessing of God is on their lives. Look at how well they're doing it. Look at their nice clothes. Look at how they are treated in society. And yet what Jesus said is they were whitewashed tombs. 
They were all perfect on the outside, but inside those tombs, they were just dead men's bones. They weren't really alive. They were dead in their sins and trespasses. And so look at John the Baptist. Think about another guy. John the Baptist was the forerunner for Jesus. He was essentially the billboard. Here comes the Messiah. The Messiah we've been looking for for centuries. Here he comes. And John the Baptist, I want you to look at his appearance. Matthew chapter 3. I should have kept my finger there. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came proclaiming in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now John himself is going to describe his appearance. John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So the man that God chose to announce his son's first coming into the world, the son of God, he's, he's dressed in camel's hair. He's wearing a belt around his waist and he's eating these bugs and wild honey. If we saw him walk into a street corner today, we'd think he was homeless. We would look at him and say, wow, that guy's crazy. I mean, he's not even showered. He's dirty. He's been living out here in the desert. And yet what we find out is what Jesus said about him in Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. John the Baptist has been imprisoned for speaking the truth to a local leader. And he's starting to have doubts about this Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. He's, he's gone through a hard time and he's kind of stressed out. And, uh, <clears throat> but as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitude concerning John the Baptist, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Look at this. He says, Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, he says, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before the Lord. Look at this, verse 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the, great of the, the, least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So he says, of all the prophets in the Old Testament, from Abel all the way to Zechariah, we see these prophets, God uses them to speak to the nation. Yet he says, the greatest is John the Baptist. John the Baptist lives in the woods, wearing animal skins, eating wild food, 
He'd be like meeting one of the Duck Dynasty guys. And yet he was the greatest prophet. Jesus, the Son of God, said he was the greatest prophet among men. But if he would come in here and he would sit on a stool and start telling us we're a brood of vipers, and he'd start proclaiming some really hard truths, many of us might discredit him because of his clothing or his smell. And so we have to consider what we ascribe worth to. Many times we ascribe worth to exterior plastic things that really don't matter. And I wore a t-shirt this morning, but there's many groups that if I wore a t-shirt to church as a pastor, they'd go, he doesn't really have the power of the Spirit because look, he's not even wearing a three-piece suit, you know? But if that was the case, I don't, I think that, you know, and, and on, the, on, the, on the flip side, consider this. Many people, because they meet a pastor wearing a three-piece suit, would discredit him because of the way he wears, what he wears, how he conducts himself. We might ascribe to him that he's a little highfalutin and he needs to lower, his, he needs to chill out. And Jesus didn't wear no three-piece suit. What's his problem, you know? And so we need to be considerate of the fact that we have a tendency to judge people based on stuff that just don't matter. It doesn't. So let's consider another man. Let's consider our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. I'm not good at Bible drill. You guys ever heard of Bible drill? My wife's like a champion. She's like... Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. Speaking of Jesus, before His coming, this is what Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote. He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and equated with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So then turn to John chapter 1, verse 46. <clears throat> I love hearing those pages turn. Makes me so happy. I'm kind of slow this morning. I'm helping you guys. I'm just giving you more time. John chapter 1, verse 46. This is what was said about Jesus. Nathaniel, who would eventually become his disciple, said this. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Arcadia Valley? Can anything good come out of Crane Pond Road? You know, like whatever your thing is, there, can anything good come out of Fiji? Maybe that would be us. Can anything, that would be the equivalent. Nazareth was backwoods. People had animals running in and out of their house. You know, uh, people were chopping wood outside their door and leaving the door open all the time. There was a guy one morning, I, I met him at Casey's and and uh, he had just walked out of Casey's at 6.30 in the morning. He got himself a 30-pack of Coors Light. He's excited. 
And uh, he comes out to my Jeep and he goes, hey, can I have a ride home? I said, absolutely. He goes, all right, just a second. I forgot to get cigarettes. He goes back in. He hands me this 30-pack. And I'm like, well, this is awkward. <laughs> Somebody from church is going to see me. They're going to be a little stumbled. <clears throat> so I quickly put it in the car, which probably looks even more suspicious. And then I pull up to the door and I'm waiting for him. And I'm like, this guy's got Coors Light and Marble Reds. He's ready to go. It's 6.30 in the morning. So we, I'm like, where do you live? He goes, I live in Fiji. And I go, let's do this. So we drive in. We go through the road. We go past the big wood pile on the left. And I've been through there because my pastor used to live there. And so we're driving through, and I've heard stories. And I'm going, hey, look at me. I'm being adventurous, whatever. And uh, so I drive in there, and he goes, okay, you can leave me right here at his driveway. And I go, let's go in. We got a Jeep because his driveway is kind of rough. And so we drive in. I pull in. There's a full set of uh, like living room furniture out in the yard. The door's wide open. The TV's blaring. He goes, hey, honey, we got company, you know. I'm like, I, I got to go to work. I'm running late, but God bless you, you know. And, and he got his 30-pack, went out. And it, but can anything good come from that? And I would submit to you, yes. God can do anything. Uh, you know, many people might from high school know me and go, can anything good come from, from the Mingi house? And I, I don't know. I, I'm trying, and I feel like God's done a lot of changing in me. Um, but maybe that's you. Maybe you think, you know, I, I'm not from anywhere that anybody knows or cares about or thinks there's anything good to. But the reality is Jesus, the Messiah, he was called a Nazarite, which wasn't like, hey, he's a Nazarite. It was like, he's from Nazareth. And then in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, what it says is when he started preaching and, and talking to these different scribes and Pharisees, they, they heard what he said and they were amazed. And they were like, isn't this just Joseph's son, the carpenter's boy? Aren't his family, and they list off all their names, and aren't they from so-and-so? And, and so I put there for you, uh, Jesus, the son of God. They didn't ascribe any possible good could come from him because of his hometown, because of his occupation, because he was a working man, or because of his family, or because of where he was born. So if you've ever felt like that, Jesus felt the same way. And yet, what we know about him is that hidden in that outer exterior that people despised was the very Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. And he was called spotless and unblemished. Spotless, completely clean, pure. God in the flesh. And then we go on to the Apostle Paul after him. He was judged in Corinth because in his letters he was weighty, he was strong-handed. And yet when they came, he wasn't tall. He had a leaky eye. And he was kind of sounded whiny with his voice. He had all these health problems from being an on-the-road evangelist. And so I would submit to you that we have the wrong way of viewing things. And we perpetuate it by how we treat people as Christians. So in verse 1 through 7, he talks about uh, the fact that favoritism ought not to be in the body of Christ. So the question I have for you is, does God show favoritism? Man looks at the outward to judge or decide a person's worth. And we do it whether we realize it or not. We judge people based on what they wear, where they're from, 
the way that they talk. Um, I've got a friend that I, he actually, him and his wife watched our kids on Friday night, but I met him 12 years ago. And when I met him, I actually, um, I sat down at the table. We started having Bible study. I was invited by a guy from work. And uh, we're studying the book of Jude, and we're just discussing it. And um, it talks about the sons of Korah in the book of Jude. Just kind of throws out the, the phrase, the sons of Korah, assuming that the, the ones reading the letter would know what he was talking about. Well, none of us did. And so my pastor now was sitting next to me. I didn't even know he was the pastor. I sat down next to him, no three-piece suit. He just had on a weird hat and was just sitting there kind of chilling. And he goes, hey, um, anybody know anything about the sons of Korah? And of course, we're all like, no, what are you talking about? And he says, hey, Lance. Now, Lance works at U.S. Tool with me. And he's a, a great tool grinder. He's a great friend. He's a great dad. But before he came to Christ, he went bankrupt. He lost his marriage. And uh, he liked go fishing. And he likes to spend way too much time in front of the mirror. But anyway, he starts breaking down the sons of Korah. Pastor Mike looks at him and says, why don't you tell us about the sons of Korah? And so he, in his slack jaw, Deloge accent, starts giving this Old Testament all the way through the New Testament survey off the top of his head. And he not only explained the circumstances, but he made spiritual application. And I go, man, I want what that guy's got. But when he first started talking, I have to submit to you, I have to confess to you, I was like, this guys he's kind of a joke. I was looking at and I was listening to his accent. And I was like, this guy's going to mumble over his words and we're going to move on. And had I discredited him and not listened, I would have missed out on one of the best 10-minute dissertations on one of the, some of the most beautiful biblical truths that I've ever heard. And so um, it still happens today. So God judges worth beyond our mere appearance. How do I know that? He loves sinners. Maybe you've not judged someone else, but maybe you've forgotten where you came from. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, we have a, a picture of the scandal of God's love. If God judged us based on our appearance, where we came from, uh, what we've said, what we've done, our sins, then we would be up a creek. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it says, When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us based on the worth that he saw in us not based on what we could give him. How do you know what something is worth? I hear people all the time, I got this truck for sale, and I'm going to put it up for sale for $2,000. I'm like, well, that's great. I've seen that truck. I don't think anybody's going to pay that. And, and many times we go, well, but I looked it up on Kelly Blue Book, right? It's got to be worth X, Y, Z. But I would submit to you, we know how much something's worth based on what somebody's going to be willing to pay for it. My Jeep is worth way more to me than someone that would be willing to pay for it. It's just reality. Um, so how much do you think you're worth? Not how much does the Bible say you're worth, but how much do you tell yourself that you're worth? If God sees our worth the way that it explains in Romans 5, how do you communicate other people's worth to them? 
Do you ever think about that? How do we communicate that someone else is worth anything to them or anything specifically to God? James says, show people their worth to God by how you treat them. Show, your, show people how much they're worth, not only to you, but as a representative of God, you show people how much they're worth by how you treat them, by your willingness to give them your time, by your willingness to help them with things. You show them how much they're worth. As Jesus' disciples, we communicate to people how much they're worth to him by how we treat them practically. And he says this in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, verse 20 through 21. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So just in the way that we treat people, it shows whether or not we really love God. God's righteous standard shows us how much he loves us. It, it, it levels all the playing field. I was listening to a guy teach last week, and he was talking about the fact when he was a young pastor, he, or he wasn't a pastor yet, he was going to Biola University. He was studying to be a pastor. And he said, um, part of going through the process of getting your whatever in divinity, you have to teach a Bible study to a group of doctors doctorate in theology, doctorate in whatever. And uh, he was so nervous about it. And it was the night before he was prepared, but he was like shaken in his waders. He was, his knees were knocking. He, he knew he wasn't going to be able to sleep. And so he was like, how in the world am I going to teach a Bible study to a bunch of people that I admire? I, I value their opinion. This is going to be incredibly hard. So he went to bed that night, and he said he had a dream. And in that dream, um, he was standing in a circle, hand in hand, with uh, all of the guys that he knew were going to be there the next day. And on top of that, he was standing in that same circle, hand in hand, with every pastor that he valued and that he had been taught by over the years. These great giants in the faith. And they were all standing in a circle holding hands around an evergreen tree. And so he recognized in the moment that every one of them were the same height. They were all the same height. And right then he woke up and he knew exactly what God was trying to show him, that everyone's level in the sight of God. We're all on the same playing field. There's, there, Billy Graham, although he's this great evangelist, in the sight of God is on the same level as you and I. He's on the same level as even John the Baptist and Elijah and all these people that have gone before us in the faith. And you can name the, the pastor you've seen on TV. We're all level in the sight of God. And so there's, neither, there, there's no one that's greater than the other. And so in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, All have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. Billy Graham had to be forgiven of his sin and repent and become a believer in Jesus. And you can think of the person in your life that you're like, man, they are so much further along than me. 
I had to come to a place of realizing how broken I was and how I couldn't live life on my own before I could ever receive the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so God levels the playing field with his righteous standard. There is no one righteous in the sight of God. There's no one good but God. But then the equal truth that's just as important, if not more, is what Jesus did for us levels our present and our future. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. 28. <clears throat> Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. I put 28, but I think it's supposed to be 23. I don't think this is the right verse. I think it's supposed to be Galatians, maybe? Oh, well. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. (laughs) It's probably Galatians. But what I'm trying to say is that Scripture teaches that in the sight of God, there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, but all are one in the body of Christ, in Christ Jesus. And so if anybody finds that verse, feel free to call it out. Huh? Galatians? Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. I don't know what I wrote there. Thank you, Stephen Persley. Yeah, see, I was way off. See what I mean? We're all leveled. Galatians 3.26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to God's promise. So in the body of Christ, not only should there not be favoritism, but there isn't any because all these things that used to separate us and make us different from one another are completely changed by the cross. That we have all been set free from our labels, if you will. So he says in light of this, in verse 8 in James chapter 2, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself and you do well. But if you show partiality or favoritism, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said don't murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty." So what he's talking about here is this law that sets us free. We've been set free by Jesus dying and fulfilling the law for us. We also get to live by the law. But the law is summed up in what Jesus said was the law of liberty, which is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Or what I put there for you is love your neighbor as yourself or love your neighbor like God has loved you. Love your neighbor like God loves you. 
treat people based on what you can get to treat people based on what you can get out of them is sin. And that I think many times is why we treat people nicer. If they would see someone coming with gold rings and fine apparel, they, we might be tempted to go, wow, I wonder what they can do for me. We would never say that, and maybe we couldn't even communicate that, but we would treat them nice because of just their stature or their, their stance or what they do or who they roll with. And, and I think it's, it's something that we all need to be careful about recognize that when we treat people based on what they're wearing or where they're from or who they roll with, it's sin. And it's not just sin against that person. It's actually sin against God. And we will be judged for it. Repent and ask God to change the way that you see and treat people. Man, we need that. Treat people the way that God treats you. Ask God for opportunities to put this to practice in your life. Don't just go, yeah, I need to change, but pray. Say, Lord, give me opportunities to treat people not based on what they look like or who they roll with or what their family name is, but just based on the fact that you love them. And then when he gives those opportunities, take advantage of them and he will give you uh, grace to do so. Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable. I promise this one's right. Luke chapter 14, in verse 7, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited um, to a feast, and when he noted how they chose the best places, he said to them, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him, and he who invited you and him would have to come to say to you, hey, why don't you uh, get out of this spot, go sit back there, and give this place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he, he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, I want you to go up higher. And then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." And then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they invite you back and you be repaid for that. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just." So we actually get paid by the Lord for how we treat those who can't pay us back. And, and Scripture even teaches that when you lend to the Lord and you help someone who can't help you back, He actually gives back, lumped down, pressed down, without measure. You can't outgive God. And so in this case, the way that He treats these people that can't pay them back, He's teaching us a kingdom principle. Many of us invite people over that can reciprocate. We don't like to not be able to reciprocate when somebody does something for us. And I tell you that because Friday night we went out to eat. Somebody had given us a gift card at Christmas time for Applebee's. And we were so blessed by that. We're so thankful. But we also haven't had a chance to go yet. So we went. We're sitting down at the table. We're all excited. We're going to go see How to Train Your Dragon 3 because we're 12. And then we're also going to go out to eat. 
no kids. Awesome. And so we're sitting down, we're having our meal, we're all happy. I'm happy because I don't have to pay. I mean, who doesn't like that? And, and I was okay with that, you know? It's humbling, but it's also like, this is awesome. But then, as we're sitting there, get ready to check out, um, we, the, the waitress comes over and goes, hey, I got a note for you. It was a note from the couple that was sitting right across the aisle from us, and they paid for our meal. And immediately, guilt and shame, and I, well, we need to take this card and give it to somebody else, and I needed to find a way to pay for that. And then I stopped, and I prayed about it just for a moment. felt like the Lord was telling me, just be blessed. Just be thankful. I don't want you to pay it back. I used that couple to, to just show you, I, I got this. I'm going to supply all your needs, not just the stuff that you need, but also I just want to bless you. You're my kids. And uh, so I looked at Kelly and I go, I guess sometimes you just got to receive a blessing and be okay with it. And it was awesome. And it was humbling because everything in me wanted to find out their name and stalk them on Facebook and send them a message and try to find some way to give them a thank you. I don't get to. And maybe I will one day. So on the way to the movie theater, we prayed for them. We prayed that if they didn't know Jesus, that he would just pour out blessing upon them. And uh, I heard someone, uh, there was a pastor recently arrested in, in China. And one of his prayers stood out to me. He said, Lord, I want to pray for these men that, are, uh, that have arrested me because they've messed up. They've messed with one of your kids. And I would hate to be them when they have to deal with the vengeance you're going to put on them for inflicting this pain on me. So he prayed for their salvation. But even more so, I was like, Lord, you've taught us to bless and do not curse. So Lord, they've blessed your kid. They don't even realize what kind of abundance you have and how you're able to bless them back. So I don't even necessarily have to thank them. Uh, God can. And he can send, I just prayed, Lord, send prophets, send people to go into their life and just witness to them like there's no tomorrow. Give them the best gift ever in return. And so uh, in many ways, we get to show these things. So um, all that said, what about if someone's sinned against me? It's one thing to say, well, I can look past where they're from. It's one thing to say I can look past their accent. I can look past the fact that they're not like me. They don't wear the clothes that I think they should wear. But what about people that have sinned against me? How do I deal with that? Because uh, I'm not very forgiving. So he says there in verse 13, Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs, though, over judgment. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So there's this principle in Scripture uh, in the Lord's Prayer. He says, uh, forgive, us our, forgive our debtors as we forgive those who have sinned against us, who have debts against us. And so um, he says, be merciful. And the word mercy actually means uh, compassion in action. Mercy is what God grants us when he dies for our sins. He does not give us what we do deserve. If you have a right understanding about sin and what you've done against God, when God forgives you, it's merciful. He does not give us the wrath that we deserved. And so showing mercy is not giving someone what they deserve 
and not seeking payback, but instead praying for blessing and looking for ways to show them compassion. And so um, I can't read the bottom. What's it say there, Jesse? The scripture reference. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew comes across this, uh, this man. He's a tax collector. Actually, Matthew's telling his own story here. It says, uh, As Jesus passed on from wherever he was, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Well, Matthew is writing this about himself. Um, it's an autobiography. But when, what you've got to know about tax collectors is that they were looked at as traitors. Matthew was Jewish, but he was also a tax collector. So imagine, if you will, somebody from your family becomes a tax collector, and uh, he comes to your house. And tax collectors in that day, they weren't just sitting at the H&R Block deal, and they weren't just your accountant. Um, the, the IRS people essentially worked for Caesar, and they had a deal. You get the taxes, you bring them back to us, and if you can get a little bit more for yourself, go for it. And tax collectors oftentimes would go, uh, we're going to need uh, X amount of dollars, and it's like 20% above what they actually owed so the tax collector could get paid. And so <laughs> the tax collector would show up at your house and say, give me the money. You got the money? And they would keep hounding you, and they would take more than you owed. And this man was supposed to be an Israelite. This is their flesh and blood. This is their family. This is people of God. And so they were looked at as turncoats. Someone had turned against their own. And what Jesus does when he walks into the life of Matthew, he doesn't say, hey, Matthew, you traitor. He doesn't say, hey, Matthew, uh, you tax collector. Hey, Matthew, scum of the earth, come follow me. What it says there is Jesus... When he saw him, he saw a man. Saw someone made in the likeness and the image of God. And he said to him, come and follow me. So Matthew arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So Matthew throws this big party, invites all of his friends, and he has Jesus there with him. And when the Pharisees saw it, these are the religious elite, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, this is a sinful, doesn't he know how bad they are? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, now, <laughs> they're asking Matthew and Jesus answers. I think sometimes people ask us questions and we feel like we got to answer Sometimes you just need to let Jesus answer for you. But he says there, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, or the idea is those who think that they're righteous, to repentance, but I came to call sinners. Jesus saw a man he said, come follow me. He didn't look at what he did. He didn't look what he was wearing. He didn't judge him based on what his past was. He saw to his future. So when he said, come follow me, he was saying it to a very sinful man. 
But Matthew responded, followed him, invited all of his friends over, wanted them to meet Jesus. And when they started picking on Matthew, the religious people, Jesus called them out and said, hey, I came for sinners. And unless you humble yourself, religious people, you can't receive mercy either. Jesus is showing mercy. He's showing compassion. Matthew recognized he didn't deserve the least of God's kindness. And yet when he received it, he was joyful. He was joy-filled, and he invited other people from his same lot in life. He said, come meet this guy. He saw a man in me. He didn't see a scum of the earth. He didn't see a tax collector. He saw a man, and he loves him. He called me to follow him, and now I'm going to. And so if Jesus had showed partiality, if Jesus showed favoritism based on your past, based on where you're from, what you've done, your family lineage, the fact that you're from Nazareth, the fact that you're from a family of of people that are enemies against God, if he hadn't shown mercy, would you be sitting here? How many people in your life have you not shared the truth with because of something they've said to you, sinned against you, because of where they're from, because you can't relate to them? How many? Because I would submit to you that by next week, if we would show mercy and people would see the grace of God in our lives, and we would actually live it out like Jesus did for us, the kingdom of God would grow. It would grow multiplying, not just adding. And so, Father, we have been shown great mercy, and uh, I'm thankful, Lord. Forgive me for not being willing to share with certain people because of my own personal bias. Please help us, Lord, to see people as people, to see them as we were before Christ, to see them as lost souls in need of new life, a second start, a new beginning, and forgiveness, and removal of guilt and shame. Help us to identify with them as we were before we recognized our need for repentance. And Father, help us to take what we've been given freely and to go and give it freely. It might cost us time. It might cost us conversation. It might cost us money. But help us to freely give what we've freely received. And may it all be to your glory. We love you, Lord. We want to rightly represent you. Cause us to rightly represent you. Forgive us for not being merciful. Forgive me for not showing mercy when I've been shown so much more than I could even possibly give. I love you, Lord, and I thank you for this passage and the challenge. Please help us to go out and learn what mercy means and to practice it. In Jesus' name, amen.